Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Let's give him a warm welcome, David Van. Cool. Well, thanks for coming, and uh, thanks to Skylight for having me here for several books, uh, which I really appreciate. They've been really supportive. <clears throat> this is the first novel I've written that's not about my family, so my family's overjoyed. <laughs> They're really happy. It's the first safe book. I was just visiting my aunt and uncle in Idaho, and uh, it's the first one they're reading because uh, because it's not about them. Uh, the I, I think a, a writer is the worst thing that can happen to a family. Yeah, I, my family has um, has been great for me in that it has five suicides and a murder and beautiful landscapes and it's been really good for writing tragedy. But for the family, you know, it's like all their shame exposed for everyone to read and um, and it's all been transformed into monster shape. I didn't tell the truth about anything, so uh, so I'm really happy with this one. It's the first time I don't feel guilty. <laughs> On all the other ones, I felt a little horrified and guilty, uh, especially Dirt. <clears throat> it's, it's a novel that uh, I thought my mother might never speak to me again uh, after reading, uh, and it turns out she was generous, and she wrote me a nice note afterward, but uh, it has like her the true story of her father beating her mother, and the fights over money and favoritism and our relationship that was strained for a while. So uh, <clears throat> I haven't really spared them. And I think it was because I, I needed the weight. I needed the true stories uh, so that we would feel there's some weight to the to the, the narrative, like we'd care about the characters. And, and so I hope that this one uh, does feel like it has weight anyway. Um, even though this is all made up, uh, the main characters. There are two minor characters in here that are based on my good friends, uh, Steve and Shalini, uh, but the rest are all made up. <clears throat> so it's set in uh, 1994, Seattle, uh, public aquarium. It's 12-year-old Caitlin meets an old man in the aquarium. It's a, a place that I know quite a bit from growing up in Alaska and then passing through there. And in 1994, I went to their public aquarium and read the descriptions by the side of each tank. And it seemed like they weren't about the fish at all. They were really about human behavior. It seemed like they were about me. And uh, it seemed really inspired. So in, it was always kind of in the back of my mind to write about fish more. And also because I'm kind of a fish head, I, when I was Caitlin's age, 12, I had eight aquariums throughout the house. And I grew up in Alaska where the first salmon I caught was taller than I was and all that. So I won't tell you fish stories in the, that way, but I'll read a, a little bit from the beginning of Aquarium. <clears throat> it was a fish so ugly, it didn't seem to be a fish at all. A rock made of cold flesh, mossy and overgrown, mottled green and white. I hadn't seen it at first, but then I pressed my face to the glass and tried to get closer. Buried in that impossible growth, the curve downward of thick lips, grimace for a mouth, small black bead of an eye. Thick tail banded with dark spots, but nothing else recognizable as fish. You know, I've read this in a couple of readings. I think I'm going to pick, read something new. Um, I'm kind of curious. Why don't you just, someone give me a page number. Something between... One and 265. Like I've never tried that. 
There's this chance that you'll hit a spoiler or something, but but who cares? So, 37. 37. All right. Excellent choice. <clears throat> okay. Um, Steve spent the night. I'm starting a little bit on 36 because it's the beginning of the section. So, <clears throat> Steve spent the night. I could hear their breathing and small cries from my mother as if she were hurt, but I knew to stay in my room and keep quiet. My mother explained many time, had explained many times that some parts of her life were hers. I had my three pillows, my pillow palace, a kind of nest or cave, and I sank away there. In the morning, Steve made cinnamon toast, which was something new, butter and then sugar and cinnamon. He put one piece face up on my plate and then cut another piece on its diagonals to make four triangles, and with these he made a pyramid. Egyptian toast, he said, was cinnamon from the Nile. What fish are in the Nile? The pharaoh fish, Steve said, and raised his eyebrows. He leaned in close and whispered so my mother wouldn't hear. They have scales of red marble, very heavy, and fins of gold. There are no fish like that. Have you been to the Nile? No. Well, I used to live there, at the bottom of the river. Don't tell your mother. The pharaoh fish gathered all along the bottom, as if they were a garden of gold. They had big lips, but never opened their mouths. They were very quiet, but they were keeping all the gold for the next pharaoh. How come I haven't heard about the pharaoh fish? Well, you have now, and you have to keep it a secret because of the gold. Five thousand years ago, someone told, and the biggest fish had to leave the river and burrow through sand and try to hide. The great pyramids are their fins sticking up out of the sand. They were the biggest pharaoh fish. I laughed and punched his arm the way my mother did. No fish are that big, I said. The largest fish is the whale shark. Now, he said, but not back then. I was distracted all morning at school thinking about the pharaoh fish. I knew Steve was making them up, but I loved the idea of their golden fins and red marble scales, and I could see them all waiting at the bottom of the river, their bellies on sand. Shalini, I said, we have to make a pharaoh fish. We had just begun art period, and Shalini already had strips of newspaper ready for Lakshmi Rudolph's legs. They're getting ready for a Christmas fair. It was supposed to be multicultural, and so they're making Lakshmi Rudolph. Um, Anyway, what, what is a pharaoh fish? They have red scales and golden fins. I've seen golden fish, but I think they're Buddhist. Where have you seen them? On tiles on walls in India, I think. And you can buy plastic ones or as balloons. Do people pray to them? I guess so. That's my religion, then. I'm Buddhist. Shalini laughed. You can't just be a new religion. There were two ways to make shapes for paper mache using wire or balloons, and we had some long, skinny balloons. So I blew up one of these and began wrapping it in Shalini strips. I imagined great temples with fish altars, and I would become a priestess. I would wear red makeup with golden lips and eyebrows. What's this, Caitlin? Mr. Gustafson asked. He looked out of breath from running around the room, his nostrils working hard. A golden fish. It will have red scales and golden fins. Let's keep focused on task. We want Rudolph to have legs, right, so he can lead the sleigh? But the golden fish is for my religion. I'm Buddhist. You're Buddhist? Yes. Caitlin. I am. What will your mother have to say about that? She'll say I'm Buddhist. I'm a vegetarian, and I pray to the golden fish, and I may become a priestess. Caitlin, you eat the school lunch. I know you're not Buddhist. And don't we already have enough religions? We need a few people to still be Christian. I pray to the golden fish. This is my god. Okay, fine. Pray to the fish. I'm going to make a paper mache of my butt and pray to that. Mr. Gustafson left then to try to save the sleigh. He had four kids working, but it looked like a fence with scraps blown against it, like something at the dump. <clears throat> You're in trouble, Shalini whispered in my ear, leaning close. She was deliriously happy about it. All the little hairs stood up on my neck and I had goosebumps. Shalini could make me shiver, as if my entire body were a bell that had just been struck. All right, another page number? Someone want to... 
Oh, Lakshmi, it's a goddess. Yeah, a, a Hindu god. Yeah, yeah. Our friend Shalini is Hindu, and it um, Lakshmi. I'm trying to remember. I have wrote this. I've written another book since this. Goddess of, uh, of good fortune, mm-hmm. and material wealth, and abundance. She's manifestation. Yeah. She's pretty curvy. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for covering for me, man. Embarrassing moment for the author not knowing his own book. It's happened before, but I didn't have you to save me. Um, cool. So another page number between one and two thirty-five or something, or fifty two two sixty-five. Two sixty-five. No, I'm not going to read. <laughs> oh, I can't read the last page. One thirty-eight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, it starts mid sentence, so. Uh, okay, wow, okay. Uh, so, Caitlin's mother, Sherry, is destroying um, uh, the old man's car, uh, who. Well, here's your spoiler, but you don't, you don't think I should spoil? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. I think this page, if you pick this book, if you pick anything after like page seventy, it tells you there's one spoiler. There's one spoiler. I mean, this would be interesting. I, I kind of think maybe I should just do it. But so I guess if there's any objection, does anyone really not want a spoiler about who someone is? Like a character, who they turn out to be. <laughs> Is it okay? Are you okay with it? Okay, okay. So, uh, anyway, uh, Sherry, uh, Caitlin's mother, is destroying uh, Caitlin's grandfather's car, like the, the mother's father's car. Um, Get in the car, Caitlin, my mother said. She was lit up bright in the headlights and falling snow, hair wild, like some goddess of winter. And as soon as I moved, she stalked over to his car and kicked his door. Stop, I yelled, but she kicked his door again, hard. He just sat there and watched her. I ran around the front of his car and tried to stop her, tried to grab her arm, but she pushed me down into the road, my hands and knees wet and slush, and she kept kicking with her steel-toed boot, denting in the side of his car. Dark blue form hunched and maddened. Stop, Mom, please stop. But she was beyond hearing, a thing of rage. She hopped up on his hood and jumped, the metal buckling beneath her, enormous dents. Then she climbed onto his roof and leapt into the air with her knees high, slamming down with her boots to cave it in. A fury fallen from the sky, no less elemental than that. She was not my mother. She was something else I had never seen, the rage in her more than I ever would have imagined. My grandfather's hands on the steering wheel still, looking at me where I crawled in the slush. He wasn't going to move. She would destroy for as long as she liked. He looked terribly sad, caves for eyes, wearing his rain jacket and a dark blazer beneath that and a collared shirt, always dressed up whenever I saw him, as if he were going to church, waiting patiently for the service to begin. She was yelling now as she jumped and pounded. You don't get to come back, you fucker. She jumped down to his trunk and slipped. The metal must have been icy. She fell hard onto his back windshield and slid and rolled overboard onto the pavement and slush. Mom, I yelled. My grandfather rolled down his window quickly. Sherry? He asked, are you okay? But she rose again, unhurt, 
one side soaked now and darker. She swung her boot high to kick in a taillight, splintering sound of plastic and glass, soft explosion of the bulb. Nice of you to ask, she said. Maybe about 19 years late, but thank you for thinking of me. She kicked in the other taillight. Stop, I screamed. I hope you love this car, she said. I hope it means something to you, Daddy. Sherry, I'm sorry. Save it. She walked past his open window to the front of the car and kicked at one of his headlights, but it didn't break. Fuck, she said. Steel-toed boots. There should be enough. I don't usually read the F-word sections. I mean, it's just because it was called out for the page numbers. I apologize. (laughs) Um, She kicked again, and uh, still it didn't break. Fuck this. She went to her open door, and I thought we were leaving, that it was over. But she popped the trunk, walked back to open it, lit up by his headlights, and pulled out the tire iron. Please, Sherry, he said. Good, she said. You do care. I only watched her, same as my grandfather did. Some agreement that this was her right, or at least unstoppable. She swung the iron at his headlight, and it exploded, and she screamed. No words, just a primal yell. And she shattered the other headlight also, then swung with that iron against the body of his car, going down the passenger side, and smashed the passenger window. He put up a hand to shield himself from flying glass, but otherwise he didn't move. He only waited as she caved in the next window. A great crash in that twilight, and no neighbors interested, no security from the school. Only the three of us left alone in the snow as she moved on to his rear window and smashed into it from both sides. She was breathing hard, rested for a moment against his car, her arms in the tire iron on the roof. I'm so sorry, Sherry, he said. If I could go back in time, I would. But I can help you now. I have a little bit of money. I have a house. I can be there for Caitlin and you, both of you. You can move in if you want. Stop paying rent. I can watch Caitlin in the evening so you have your freedom. My mother stepped back and stood there with the tire iron hanging. I thought she was going to swing at him, but she smiled. That's what you think? That we'll form a happy family now? You trade the dying wife for the granddaughter and all is made well, just in time for Christmas? She swung fast, and he lunged to his side just in time. The iron smashed the part of his window not rolled down. And you think you can use my daughter against me? I'm sorry, he said. He was crying now, the most awful lonely sobs. Mom, I begged. No, you don't get to do this. She swung at his windshield, yelling with the effort, pocking holes in it. The surface jeweled in the streetlights, caving in. She yelled until the glass was destroyed and she was hitting the dashboard and steering wheel. My grandfather lying across the bench seat, invisible to me, sound only of his voice, utterly lost. Let me tell you what's going to happen, my mother said, breathing hard. You're going to leave us alone or I will hurt you. You don't see Caitlin ever again. I will hurt you. And you live in your house with your money and you die alone. No one will be there and no one will care. You will rot in that house until the smell brings your neighbors. And then they stick you in a hole and no one is there and no one ever visits. And that's it. That's all you get. She bashed his side mirror until it broke off and hit the pavement. Have a nice drive home. My mother tossed her tire iron in the trunk then and slammed it shut. Caitlin, she said, get in now. I walked past, but he didn't see me, still lying across the seat, dashlights making an aquarium of the interior of his car, pieces of safety glass hanging in bright pebbled waves, light blue, an ocean made brittle somehow and broken, shockwave of sound or something more, sudden and devastating, and what could he do but lie on the bottom and hide? So that was interesting to read something from later. I never get to read something from later. So uh, maybe one more page number call out? Anything between 100 and 265, except as we've already tested me, 265. Yeah. I seem I read one, one part of one paragraph. One? Yeah, but then I, I, you know, I was bored. I'd already read it. Other readings, I couldn't do it. Yeah, it was unbearable to me. <laughs> Not really. Oh yeah, 47. 
Is that actually picked? Is that a good spot? I have no idea. That was just the one that I was going to pick. Okay. Okay. What happened, she asked. What's wrong? This is uh, Sherry speaking to Caitlin. I tried to answer, but I was crying against her neck, these awful out-of-control sobs. She set me down. Caitlin, you have to tell me right now. Inspector Bigby, I said. He asked if I had a parent, and he wants to see you. He's one of the customs officers. My mother looked out the window, as if he might be watching us right now. His first name is Bill, and he's mean, and they were laughing. Come with me right now, she said. We're going to the car. Walk fast. I grabbed my backpack, and we hurried through the rain, exposed for anyone to see. Big floodlights. This is at the container port in Seattle, where the Sherry works, uh, basic labor. I jumped in, and my mother, and she doesn't have someone to watch Caitlin. She just has her sit in the car where she's working. Um, I jumped in and my mother held the door. I have to tell my foreman I'm leaving, she said. I'll be right back. Don't go, I said. I told him your name. It's okay, Caitlin. It's going to be okay. My mother jogged away then through the rain, still wearing her helmet. I was afraid she wouldn't come back. Bill would take her in his new Jeep to some prison, even though she hadn't done anything wrong, and I would never see her again, locked away somewhere. And she was gone a long time. Needles of rain on the roof of the car, bright lights in the darkness swallowing my mother. But she did return, and we do- drove slowly through the yard to the gate where she stopped and gave her ID. And then we were free, back on West Marginal Way Southwest, and then the bridge. When we arrived home, my mother parked in front of our apartment, turned off the engine, and slumped forward against the wheel. I'm sorry, I said. No, sweet pea, she said. Quiet now. It's not your fault, and it will never happen again. I think there's some law that says I can't leave you alone without an adult, so I won't do overtime. We should still be okay. I'll have enough for rent and food and gas, and you have your aquarium pass. I can afford the water and heat. We just won't have any extras. I'll cancel the phone and TV if I can. Will we still get ahead? My mother laughed. Sweet pea, you've been listening to me too much. It'll be okay. I won't be putting anything into retirement for me or college for you. That's what I meant by getting ahead. Maybe saving for a house, but that wasn't happening anyway. But you can still go to college. You just have to study hard, okay? Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, was, I, could, I guess I could, I could read one more. We could do one more. <laughs> a page number? Okay, someone new? What'd you say? Uh, uh, any from 1 to 265. How about 222? 222, nice. Good to have a late pick. Uh, uh, it's the last paragraph of chapter. So should I back up? Yeah. I'll back up. Uh, uh, Okay, where well, it's good. Oh my God, I'm gonna to have to back up forever to find. How am I gonna find? Okay. Um, um, yeah, this is a. Uh, it's. Uh, this is the the aftermath of an argument. So I'd have to read the argument. Um, This is it's confusing, like how to how to read that. So all what I'll do is I'll go just a little earlier in the one that you picked, and um, and um, do the scene so it makes sense. Because if you just do the aftermath of what's been said and you don't hear what's said, it's a, uh, okay. 
We were at a chowder house, a fish restaurant, expensive, more expensive than any other restaurant I'd ever been to. My mother did that on purpose, I knew. She was burning through what would have become her own money, but still she wanted to punish him, and this was one way to make him watch his dollars disappear. Have you decided, the waiter asked? I was still panicking over the menu. There was nothing inexpensive. It wasn't like other menus. The types of fish were listed at the top, and then you could pick how it would be prepared, and pick side dishes and combinations. The menu was like a math problem, and all the numbers too high. I'll have the king crab, my mother said, and the moonfish. The moonfish is amazing, the waiter said, an excellent choice. It's very rare that we have it on the menu, flown in fresh from Hawaii. And it should be only lightly seared, very lightly. It has such a delicate buttery flavor, and that's gone if you sear it a moment longer. How much does that cost, Steve asked. It's $65 for the moonfish, and really the best choice we have on the menu tonight. Sherry, Steve said. He'll have the moonfish also, my mother said, pointing to Steve. My father is treating tonight. Excellent, the waiter said. I'll have the moonfish also, my grandfather said. Did you know he's a war hero, my mother asked, raising her voice so that others would hear, pointing to my grandfather. World War II, he watched his buddies die. I'm sorry, sir, the waiter said quietly, and thank you for your service. He also abandoned his dying wife. My mother still speaking in this loud voice, people looking at us. I was 14 and got to take care of her and watch her die. Maybe not so heroic, that part. But I think we have to forgive our heroes anything because they watched their buddies die. What do you think? The waiter wore a small smile that was a wince. He said nothing, and for what seemed like a long time, our small side room of the restaurant and its half-dozen tables were silent. I'm sorry, my grandfather said. I deserve all that. Then it was quiet again. I thought Steve would say something, defend my grandfather, but he didn't. If he had, I think he would have lost my mother right then. My grandfather handed his menu to the waiter, then Steve did the same, and my mother, and the tables around us began talking quietly again. And for you, the waiter asked me. His voice was barely more than a whisper, and I felt sorry for him. I can't eat fish, I said. I love them too much. Oh, he said, and then my grandfather said, I'm so sorry, Caitlin, I forgot. Do you have anything on the menu that's not fish? We do have a burger, and also a simple pasta marinara. Pasta, please, I said, and my grandfather said, me too, instead of the fish. My mother folded her arms and looked down at her napkin. I'm sorry, she said, when the waiter had left. That was too much. I came here to punish you, and apparently to punish Caitlin also, without even realizing it. But that's not me. I don't want to be mean like that. Steve put his arm around her, and she leaned onto his shoulder. She was starting to cry, but careful not to make any sound. I was afraid to move, afraid to say anything, and I think my grandfather was too. So we just sat there and waited until she wiped at her eyes and sat up straight again. What do you think you'll study, my grandfather asked, maybe just to break the silence. But it was good that he was the one to speak. Oh, my mother said, I have to do my GED first. I can probably take a course to study for that. And they go they go on having a discussion, but maybe that's enough for that. <laughs> so um, I love to have uh, questions. Uh, that's actually my favorite part. But I have to say I really enjoyed being able to just read randomly. It's so nice not to read the same sections I've re- I read before. I realize it probably seems a little random. Um, but uh, it was. <laughs> that's why it seemed that way. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so any questions? Yeah? Did you remember all the stuff about the fish from when you were young, or did you have to read and... Uh, uh, there's this great website called fishbase.org that has uh, 
just, I mean, I think tens of thousands of species on it, maybe more, and photos of, of all of them. And I was looking through the photos and I'd find one that was interesting that I wanted to look at for a while. And in the book, fish are the landscape and also Seattle as if it's underwater. Like Caitlin sees as if, if it's a starfish on the ocean bottom with the deep sea anglers, the lights of the planes overhead and all that. And when they go to a movie theater, it's like it's a cave with the balconies overhead and all that. Um, so I, in the past, I've always done uh, natural landscapes in Alaska for my first two books and then Northern California after that. And th the way writing works for me is I have no outline or plan. I have no idea what the book will be about, no idea what the themes will be. And I, they're not premeditated in any way. I usually start writing one novel, work on it for three days, and then stop, and the next day I start my novel. And then it's just every day for six months, writing a page a day, and then at the end, there it is. And it's published the same as the first draft, except just line edits. There's no scene that's cut or added or moved or anything. So it's a very strange process. And the only way it works is that there's so much more pattern to our subconscious or unconscious minds than there is to our conscious minds. So it's like a Rorschach test, like an inkblot drawing where you you know you can't just see ink on paper you start to see shapes and meeting and pattern because essentially our minds are pattern makers like we can't let the natural world remain neutral we can never do that so as I describe Alaska, it would the, the forest or the water, it would change shape, shape or become crazy or indicate the inside life of the characters in some way. So in Caribou Island, for instance, Irene is running through the forest and she feels like the whole island is tilting beneath her and, and it's going to roll over because it's top heavy with the stones and trees and the slick underside will be exposed to the sky. And you know, those are like moments where the, the landscape does something strange, which shows the mindset of the of the character viewing them. It really comes from the idea um, of uh, referential mania in Nabokov's short story, Signs and Symbols. It's a metafictional story. And in it, the boy has a mental illness called referential mania in which he believes that everything refers to him. So when the clouds move overhead, they're speaking uh, to him or about him, saying something about him. Other people are a reference to his existence. They exist only as part of his life. And Nabokov was saying that that's who protagonists are in fiction. Everything does relate to them. Any description of landscape in a book does tell you theme and does give you an indication of the inside life of the main character, of their vision and how that vision is shifting. The existence of the other characters, the antagonist often is a kind of foil to the, to the main character. So I actually got to live this experience. It's really fun to be a protagonist. I was new age in high school, like total believer. And I, I, did, uh, I, I taught relaxation and meditation workshops. I did fire walking where you put your arms out and use your fear as a counselor to walk across the hot coals. And I was tending the fire. And I tried to walk on water over and over. I, I mean, really thinking it might work. I crashed into various mountain lakes and hot tubs throughout Northern California. Uh, my friends and I also, unfortunately, the new age movement has a um, quantum physics mixed in without any actual knowledge of math or science and not understanding scale and speed and so we thought we could walk through walls and we tried like many many times and it was considered poor form to put your arms up you know <laughs> really had to just walk into it and have faith so so I really was a believer and I felt that the whole world was about me and related to me that that when I was out you know hiking in the Sierras that the mountains were speaking about me and I did believe that other people were just teaching me a lesson in my life toward transcendence and so I became a little selfish monster no one else was actually real you know they were just a part of my life so um 
anyway, that's that's the method of the books. Is that that as I describe this natural space, I end up inevitably describing the inside life of the characters, and I find out what the story will be. I just start with a place and a character with a problem, and then I find out each day and get surprised. Like this gets pretty extreme. Like the, some of the sections I read, Sherry's rage at her grandfather, at her, her father. I just had no idea that she had that in her that it would be so extreme, um, and I didn't know the whole book would be about forgiveness. But what's wonderful about the unconscious way of writing is that it unlocks all these things that you wanted to write about but couldn't in your previous plans. So, for instance, I've had a really bad relationship with my mother for like 15 years, and neither one of us could forgive each other for various things. But this book helped me actually have a good relationship with her again because it ended up being all about forgiveness and a family coming back together. That forgiveness isn't being able to undo the past or make things not have happened or even explain them, but just a willingness to stop and missing each other and wanting to continue on in something better. And it's just as simple as that. And so the book taught me that. And as a result, I get along with my mother now. And so the book uh, did something. So I hope that it's not just my personal therapy. I hope it also provides something uh, to readers. But this one was strange for me because it was a city. It was my first urban landscape. But I realized I can't really write with an urban landscape. So Caitlin sees it as if it's underwater, Seattle. And there are all these descriptions of fish. So when Caitlin and the grandfather talk about the fish, they're talking about themselves. That was kind of a long answer. To, that was ridiculous. That guy won't shut up. <laughs> you, you said all your previous books were based in, in real family history. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much uh, did you find you use this unconscious process? How much did you find that you were building blocks of this, though it was fiction, were still real things? Like you said you were into fish. Yeah. Is there still a lot of, like, like your mom transmogrified into this character or an event from your past? Yeah, it was really just the love of fish and thinking of them as a way to describe human behavior because they're also specialized and weird. And then um, this idea of forgiveness. Um, And then I have the two friends, Shalini and Steve, are straight-up descriptions of real friends that I have, the minor characters. But the main characters are really like no one in my family. And these were the first generous men that I wrote, the first good men. I've been really critical of men in all my other books. The men are all awful. Like, like me and the men in my family. Like, you know, it was a, a description of our badness. And finally, maybe that's over, because these are both generous, nice men who are likable and try to make things work out and, and don't hurt anybody or do anything bad. So I was really surprised uh, by that. So it really isn't like my family, and it really isn't um, like my life. Uh, and also, there's this relationship with Shalini Caitlin has which is the beginning of a romantic relationship at age 12 and I never imagined writing about two 12 year old girls having a romantic relationship like I, I, I mean my publisher would have asked me not <laughs> to go there actually <laughs> been premeditated um, but it ended up being I thought it was so beautiful I loved I loved what, what they were uh, for each other and I loved the grandfather's recognition of it at, at some point point. Um, so, yeah, it took me to strange, different places that I hadn't imagined that really weren't about my family, but maybe were about things I can't see, like, you know, some softening in other ways about how I'm viewing people. And what made you want to meet the more autobiographical stuff? That you do well, I just finished. 
Go Mountain is my best book, and it's the one that uh, finishes off all my family history. And I think it's best because it's the it's an inferno. It's a description of hell, and I think that's the natural goal of tragedy. And across all the other books, what I was writing was Greek tragedy. In Go Mountain, there's just two and a half characters. On, in one place on a mountainside for two and a half days. It's, it's uh, uh, did I say four characters? Did I say, the, did I said two and a half? I said two and a half twice. So yes, yeah, yeah, two and a half minutes. But anyway, it's uh, four characters, sorry, for two and a half days in one place on a mountainside. So it's close to dramatic unities, and especially in that the action is all one dramatic action that you don't get a break from. My novels, except for Caribou Island, they're all novellas, actually, where you never get to pull away from the main drama to anything else. So they try to keep you immersed and locked in and not give you any escape. It's just that they're novel length. But they, they have a very small cast of characters. They exclude most of the world, as in a Greek play. Um, they don't give you a break from the main action. Also, there's a taboo that's crossed, something terrible that shouldn't happen, that happens usually, that breaks the rules. And then that calls into question what the rules are, like what holds us together as families or larger groups. And there's a, a primary relationship at the core, family relationship. So in Goat Mountain, it's an 11-year-old boy and his grandfather uh, in Dirt, a young man and his mother in uh, Caribou Island, a marriage in Legend of the Suicide, a boy and his father. Uh, so they're, they're all primary um, relations here, a girl and her mother. And uh, all the characters are acting unconsciously and out of control. That's the most important part about Greek tragedy. And that as they do that, they end up hurting each other. So Greek tragedy, I think, is mostly about why do we hurt the people we love most? That's the central mystery for it. And that's what's fueled all of my writing. All of my writing has been about these close people who love each other. They really have only each other in the world. Why do they do these terrible things to each other? Why do they hurt each other You know, in this kind of blind, out-of-control way? Um, so the natural end, if you think about that that's what tragedy does, putting characters under pressure until they break, thinking about our badness and how we're out of control and how we hurt each other, then the natural goal or end of tragedy is to write an inferno, a hell. It's an external landscape to represent our felt badness inside. And so Goat Mountain is my hell. It's a hunting trip gone wrong, the ranch that we went to every fall when I was a child, the place that held our family history, all of our stories and everything. Um, and the, the grandfather becomes a kind of terrible Old Testament god. He's the opposite of the grandmother here, grandfather here. They're really, uh, those two books speak to each other. In Goat Mountain, it's an 11-year-old boy who kills a poacher right in the first chapter and doesn't feel anything. And it's after I'd written a nonfiction book about a school shooting and really caught up in that question of how is it that someone could kill six people and wound 18 and just feel nothing. Like the teacher said when he was shot with a pistol, it was like Steve was painting a room, a wall in the room and had missed a spot and was just covering it. It was just like no emotional affect. Um, so, and I had this hunting background and growing up with guns and after my dad's suicide I aimed at the neighbors with a 300 Magnum and shot out the street lights and my dad had always let me aim at poachers with that rifle with a shell in the chamber and the safety off. If I just tapped the trigger the guy would be dead. And it's like my dad was willing me to do that. So it was just an outgrowth of the thing that was rehearsed over and over in the novel finally happens in the way it did in real life. And uh, so this is the opposite book. This is a 12-year-old who is caring and generous and wants a family to come back together instead of someone who kills and feels nothing. And instead of a terrible Old Testament God for a grandfather, it's a generous grandfather who wants things to work out. 
Um, so all the books speak to each other in that way. It's really interesting. And although this isn't tragedy, it's the first one that's not, it's still Greek drama where the characters act out of control and they go pretty extreme in what they do. So, yeah. so how does the Greek chorus function? Yeah. In, yeah. I never understood. Yeah. Was, the, was on their side. But right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, they always seem like kind of reasonable. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, so in Goat Mountain, I actually have a Greek chorus. Um, I have just four characters. There's the 11-year-old boy, and his grandfather is the antagonist. I thought it would be the father, but it's the grandfather he's fighting against. And then the father is really a, a moral man. That's his role in the chorus. And then um, Tom, the friend, is an everyman. So the everyman is outraged at the stuff that's happening, but not doing anything about it. The father keeps trying to assert morality in a, against all the facts to the contrary, despite what the boy is capable of and what the grandfather is saying and challenging. He still tries to assert that. There's a great short story you can read. It's very brief and it's wonderful. And it shows you exactly how uh, the chorus in Greek tra- tragedy works. It's uh, Zora Neale Hurston um, uh, Spunk, and it's got Elijah and and Walter. And one of them is conscience, and the other is like a rumor, you know, inciting things. And you can see that they, they're basically the two pressures on a character. That's one thing that the chorus does to represent. They show the kind of choice, the terrible choice that the character is forced into in Greek tragedy, where whichever way they go, they're going to be ripped in half, lose one or the other. The chorus represents those halves that are ripping the main character in, apart. So mine doesn't work exactly like that, but it's similar. I didn't realize until after I wrote the book that they were functioning like that. I didn't know why the Holy Trinity was showing up in my book either, like the grandfather like God, the poacher like a Jesus figure, the, a buck like the Holy Ghost. I didn't understand the book till the last 50 pages. I mean, that's how unconscious it is. Like, I really had no idea why the religious bits were in there and didn't understand what the book was about. And then when I finished it, I could see that all the books were about religion. That There's a, a rewrite of Genesis at the opening of Legend of a Suicide in the novella then there's doom in the Anglo-Saxons in Caribou Island, the New Age movement in Dirt, the Holy Trinity in Goat Mountain, and then I've written another novel about Medea which has Greek and Egyptian gods. Uh, So this is the first one, actually, that doesn't have a big focus on religion. It's still got the pharaoh fish and the Buddhist fish and they're doing a you know, making these ridiculous paper mache things around religion. So I hadn't thought about it until talking right now that actually there is religion, but it's talked about in this lighter way. Hmm? Oh, and actually it's really important for the grandfather. At the end, the whole reason he leaves and the kind of deal he feels he made with God, like, it actually isn't. Sorry, I forgot. So you really understand narrative deeply. So I have this question Mm -hmm. to ask you. Where is the forefront of narrative? Where is the last frontier? Where is narrative going? <laughs> well, the thing is, I'm a neoclassical writer. I'm basically doing what we've done for 2,500 years, so I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's exactly the same, that we're living the same way, and that our narratives haven't really changed, and that people who write from ideas are missing the boat. Like, I really think that an idea is the worst thing that can happen to a writer, and that trying to be innovative and trying to do something new just makes your work suck. 
Like that's the only thing it can do, I think. And so obviously that's a, a very limited and conservative um, kind of view in terms of you know, narrative. It's not like my politics are conservative, but in terms of you know, writing. And I do actually teach experimental writing. I, I teach that and I always encourage my students, try generative devices where you don't write, you can't use the letter E or you have to have the verb in the second half or you have to use nouns, adjectives, and verbs outside their usual part of speech. So you can't have a flag, but you could feel flagged or flag a train. Um, I think those are useful because I think literary fiction does have conventions and we can be used by those and generative devices can knock us out of those kinds of kinds of ruts. Uh, so I think that's useful, but in the end I think uh, we are actually still writing drama and like someone who's really great and interesting stylistically who everyone likes, like George Saunders, the big limit for him is that he writes only about morons. The people might as well be dogs. Like really he writes only about morons. Like think about 10th of December, they're all morons. That's a huge limitation to the fiction. So although it's really cool sentences, really interesting stylistically, he's not writing about people. And that's going to limit his work, like over time. Right now he's huge. Eventually he won't be because of that. Like that's going to hurt him. Like I believe. You're amazing. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so there are always great writers coming out of Seattle in best-selling fiction and, you know, really literary people like them D'Ambrosio. Uh, Charles D'Ambrosio? Yeah, I met him. I really liked his story, uh, The Point. It's one of my favorite suicide stories. That one's incredible. Amazing, right? Yeah, I have like a little collection of suicide stories because my dad's suicide. Like, you know, we read according to our interests, so of course I was drawn to all those. And I also really like girl coming of age stories for some reason. Like, I really love Ellen Foster by Kay Gibbons and Bastard Out of Carolina. Like, I love those books. And actually, I just bought. Uh, girl's a half-formed thing, which I hear is great stylistically and stuff. I don't know if it's girl coming of age or not. Oranges are not the only fruit by Jeanette Winterson. It's another one I really love. So, yeah, who knows why I have that interest? Because, you know, what troubles did I really have growing up as a girl? <laughs> but, uh, but, anyway. <laughs> Well, some of them, I mean, Charles D'Ambrosio, he was at the Iowa writing program, and, and he was from a long time ago, and he would say that he hasn't come out at all. He's had to wait forever. It's been long and frustrating. <laughs> I'm like, when's he really going to get recognized? Yeah, he's really, really good. And it was so crazy. He wasn't recognized for so long. Couldn't get a book published. And, and as a, I don't know. I don't really know him personally. I mean, I've talked to him a few times and met him, and, and I love his work, but yeah, I don't know. Anyone else? Another question? Yeah? So, I didn't quite catch your new age of your own volition, <laughs> and that you had learned about these other religions. Uh, yeah, in high school, I really needed religion. I'm an atheist now who actually believes that we really need religion. And if we can't have religion, if we can't believe, we have to find a substitute because we need it so desperately, something like it. So for me, it's my daily writing practice. It really is two hours every morning, except if I have to take a flight for a book tour. But otherwise, it's two hours every morning. And the first hour is reading through the previous 20 or 30 pages, like a meditation. My mind's going different ways and it comes back. And then the next hour is like contact with mystery. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, and things do happen. The next paragraph is there. I think I'll never write another page again, but the page does does happen. So to me, that's religion. Uh, that that satisfies me. It it's a thing I can do in which no part of me is left out. It fully uses 
the, uh, you know, most, most jobs you do, they leave some part of you standing outside. And, and um, I think we need something that's engaging. I think happiness is not lying on the beach, but it's engagement, that that's the whole thing, that we're somehow fully used and, you know, burned away by something. Uh, we need something like that. I don't know, but me, I, I, you know, the, the person I care about most certainly needs that quite a lot. And, and the people that are close to me that I know, well, they seem to need it also. Uh, but anyway, I started as a, in high school, I went to all kinds of different religions, trying to find one that I could believe. And New Age, I believed for a long time and really was a true believer, but then got deprogrammed in college, basically. I took a religious studies class and a history of science class and they really knocked me out of my faith so I blame universities and actually my family blames universities recently I was I was um, telling them about why I got separated from my wife and they said that the writing was very bad for my head it had done very bad things for my head they could tell from talking with me and that being in universities so much it had also done very bad things so I, I have to warn you against books writing in universities <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Your, your story, your structure had that conciseness. You know, you talk about the Inferno, you know, tight, well-packed story. Mm-hmm. Um, to do that in in one fell swoop, the six months swoop. But how long did it take you to get your process and your knowledge of structure mm-hmm. and story to the point that you could achieve that? Well, I, I failed for a long, long time. So the first book, Legend of Suicide, I worked on for 10 years, from when I was 19 until 29 years old. And everything that's in the book, I wrote incredibly quickly. Like the first story I wrote at 3 a.m. for a couple hours and then woke up and finished the last scene and, and only moved one paragraph. Uh, but I didn't learn from that experience. I still thought writing was mostly revision. I thought that was just a freak, that, that one story. And so I wasted most of the 10 years on my serious work, all which had many versions, lots of revision, and all of which had to be thrown away. It's all Frankenstein with stitches. And then... Um, I wrote uh, the novella, which is most of the book, in half of it in 17 days, sailing from San Diego to Hawaii, having uh, like never more than 45 minutes of sleep, having paranoid dreams that islands were rising up that weren't on the chart, reading Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. I mean, it was this awful, kind of strange and wonderful dream, that experience. And, and I, I wrote you know, half of a novella in the 17 days that I was doing that. Uh, so everything that I kept in the book ended up being almost completely unrevised and uh, very quickly written, but over a 10-year period of lots of failure. And then I wrote 50 pages of Caribou Island and totally couldn't see how to do a longer arc, just couldn't do it. And then 12 years later, finally wrote that book. My uh, Goat Mountain is based on the first short story I ever wrote more than 25 years ago, Dirt on the second short story I wrote. So they were, they were stories that were failures early on, material that I knew was important but didn't know how to approach. And my brain had to get older and I had to have more experience and time uh, to be able to finally write them. And now I've written seven books in the last seven years and it's been you know, just picking low-hanging fruit. Like It's all been very easy to, to do all of it and really fun. It hasn't been painful at all. I've Loved the whole process. Like, enjoyed it. Yeah, 
And the other half, I think, is a language study. I actually am translating every day from Old English and Latin, which are the two source languages for now. So in linguistic, in linguistic terms, the way that we can write without thinking about each sentence as we're doing it, is that we have competence and performance. Competence is all of our study of the language. So what we've heard, what we can read, but really um, increased by looking at, like I would, I would watch movies and pause at each scene and write down one line for what happened in the scene. So at the end I'd have three pages that outlines the film. So I can see what dramatic structures they were using. Like doing that with dozens of films. And then doing it with books also. And with my own books and stories. After I write a novel I go back and I, I make like a five or six page outline that just has a little one line about each scene. Kind of what happened. That gives you a sense of, of pacing and structure. You know, how much time did I spend. And I also add up how many pages did this character get and that to get an idea of balance and, and how the whole thing goes. It leads to no revision in the end, but in the end I feel like at least I understand the book and I understand how it went together. So it's that kind of study and, and in university classes, uh, studying style and then study of language that's related language. All of that raises your competence, what, what you can understand in, a, in an English sentence. In studying Latin you get to see all the buried grammar. So I go to the store to buy some milk is really, I go to the store in order that I might buy some milk. It's an clause with a subjunctive. So it's buried grammar. Much of grammar now is elided. It's been taken out. So uh, it's really helpful to know that. And then to know the sound and rhythm of Old English to use paired heavy stresses, which you see in many novels, like in Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping, our, our hovering faces and our cold hands, or at the beginning of Annie Prue's The Shipping News, uh, uh, gut-roaring... Uh, no, oh, hive spangled, gut roaring with gas and cramp. He survived childhood. It's the second paragraph. It's all paired stresses except one three triple stress, and then it ends with he liked to ham knuckle, buttered spuds. She's using the lexicon from Old English, like mostly Anglo-Saxon words, the Germanic or Scandinavian side, but she's also using that insistent, those paired stresses at points of emphasis. So when you're writing. If you know all of that, if you've read it a bunch and immersed in it, when you come to the last paragraph in a section, a place of tremendous emphasis, you'll end up providing greater metrical cohesion. You'll end up going into those paired stresses or into something from Latin like ambic pentameter or something. You'll end up providing that because that's a cue to the reader that this is important, they should pay attention. There's all these cues that readers aren't aware of that they're actually responding to. And it's mostly about levels of cohesion in a text, which you can understand by uh, just getting a linguistics te textbook. There's one I recommend called Linguistics for Students of Literature. It's out of print, but you can find them sometimes various places online and such. Um, so that's your competence, all of that. But then your performance is far away from your competence. It's only a subset of it. But if you do the practice every day, if you actually write every day, you can get that performance closer and closer to fully what your competence is. So when you end up writing, you don't think about it and typing the speed of what you can think, but you end up writing a complex sentence that reflects in some way studying the style in Blood Meridian or studying Beowulf or studying Annie Prue. Uh, so to my understanding, that's how it all works. And that's why I'm doing that every day with those two languages, because um, I think that's the only way I can get better. Do you want to hear a little bit of Beowulf?
It's very pretty. So what? Wegar Dana and Yer Dagum, Thead Kuninga, Thrimia Frunin, Hutha Eitlingas, Ellen Fremadon, Ofschild Shefin, Shadana Threatum, Monogum Methum, Meoda Settler of Teach, Exeter Erla, Sithan Eris, Westfarshaft Funden, Hethas Frofre Yabad, Werks under Walknam, Werthmundum Tha, Othat Elwich there, Im Sithendra of Hronrada, Huren Shodan, Gomban Gulden, that was God Kuning. So it's pretty, isn't it? And that's our that's our old Germanic Scandinavian language base. And then the French invaded, so we got Latin through French. And so you can hear it combined in Chaucer. Juan de Rapro with the Shura Sota, the Drucht of March hath passed to the Rota, and bothered every vein and switched the Kur, of which Vertu engendered is the floor. So you hear Drucht of March, so that's the German sound, the GH is still sounded, hasn't gone silent yet. But you hear engendered uh, uh, from French, you have the long vowels, the floor. Uh, so it's, that's the most beautiful language ever was 600 years ago. Beowulf was 1,200 years ago, and then Chaucer 600 years ago. Um, you can really hear both. You know, they haven't gone silent. Language over time, they all get simpler and uglier. They, they lose their complication through use. We simplify them. So it's only when someone invades that, that things improve. So we really have to thank the French for invading England. It was the nicest thing they ever did for the language and the literature. It's why it's so great to write in the language now. So we really need to invite other invasion. Like Chinese would be cool because it's a different language base, but I'm not sure if it works. You know, French and, and uh, German were both uh, Indo-European language base, and it could be you have to be invaded from within the base that's just split for a while. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, I actually wrote a, a piece that no one seems to want to publish. It's called Schwaticon, and it's about where our language is going. And in English, we're going to one vowel, the schwa, the uh sound. All of our vowels, you can ex- see examples now of every vowel switching to that sound. So eventually we will just have... Uh, 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 I mean, it's going to be so incredibly. It's already American English is already one of the most ugly languages in terms of sound in in the world. But but it's going to get far far uglier. Um, but that's part of why it's taking over, and that's why it's what everyone speaks in the world. It's kind of simple and ugly and useful. And um, so anyway, but it's called Schwaticon because it's also going to include emoticons. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, I just I do an outline after I've written the book so I can understand it. Flannery O'Connor said you write something, then you try to understand it afterwards, and for me that's totally true. Like I write it and then afterwards I spend a couple of years trying to figure it out. And it's always when I go to France and have interviews with really smart journalists there that I finally understand something. Like it's always the French journalists are the best. I mean France has the most intact literary culture, an independent bookseller in every neighborhood, huge communities of readers, fifty reviews for a book, primetime TV, uh, prizes, festivals, you know, it's incredible. So uh, yeah, I realized for time, um, you know, we're pretty much, I don't know if that, I mean, I may have to answer things forever. I mean, I have nothing to do, but. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I just, it's interesting because you're, you're talking, like you were saying, about the writing intervention. Mm-hmm. That's beat into its drum, it's its mantra of yeah. workshop. And yeah, I was told it was 95% revision. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I, I'm just fascinated with this, this intuitive process. Yes. There is yeah yeah I hung out with him a bunch in France actually we have the same French publisher yeah, it's great he was my teacher 
but I think it's fascinating the work that you're doing. What I thought was interesting about your response, the work that you're doing to create deep structure underlying that intuitive process. Mm -hmm. It's right. not just an unguided process. You know, it has to be discipline, like all the stuff to feed it, and then a daily practice to activate it. So your language has increased to a point that you can then trust Right. Conscious. Yeah, that you'll go the right way in terms of dramatic structure, a way that can work. That a novel will open up and then close down at the end. Like, you know, like in Caribou Island, it's seven points of view, four couples all reflecting on marriage, which is a big surprise to me. I thought it was going to be one point of view. But all those characters open up all their stories and then they start falling away. So it can funnel down to the main dramatic action at the end. And I was just so shocked by that, that that could happen without a plan or an outline or thinking about pacing or page numbers or where that would have to happen. It just happens, like from some feeling of having read a bunch of novels of kind of where that should happen. So, yeah. Yeah. And that one, I mean, I take a lot of authors that say that, Oh, and then the characters just took over. Yeah, that I never understood that comment. It's not like the characters ever start writing or doing themselves. It's really just that uh, what's going to happen is seeing what's said. It's not premeditated, but it, it follows all the momentum of what's gone before, and it's some reflection of you know the author's unconscious or subconscious mind, the kind of pattern that they're making. But the idea that somehow the characters themselves as external entities take over and do stuff is just ludicrous. Like, I, I've never heard a writer actually say something that makes me believe that that can happen. It's just something that people say. Like, I, I, I've never understood it. it. It goes to me just in the unexplained garbage bin. Is that they're trying to get I think it's just easy to say. It's easy to say that, like, it's a lazy way of trying to. It's not trying to explain what the process actually is. Yeah. So. Well, it's coming from a different perspective that we have yet. Yeah. 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 Well, I always tell my students, like, they're getting just one limited point of view from me. And the great thing about writing programs is every teacher ends up saying different things, and we all contradict each other. Like, there's this teacher in England, Sarah Moss, and she told everyone, you have to be so respectful in nonfiction of your family. You have to take care of them, think about the consequences. She changed one of her memoirs because she didn't want her daughters to be affected. And I tell everyone, you have to take your family up to the altar and swing the axe. You know, so my students were coming from one workshop into another, hearing completely different things um, but I've never heard like a great actual description of how that is that that characters take over I just haven't heard something I believe so that's all I should say is that I've never believed it I've never understood it really I always thought it was like sort of like an anthropomorphizing of the insight process like as you're, as you're writing you're having insights and discoveries mm -hmm. you just sort of like uh, say that the characters did it characters. right I yeah, channeling. I was going to try to become a mystic instead of going to college. I was studying with the mystic Betty Bethards, uh, who would smoke a lot and drink Pepsi and was totally a mystic and was leading us all toward transcendence. And I almost didn't go to college. I was also using visualization to make the bowling pins go down, and I was scoring like 220. 230. I thought about becoming a professional bowler instead of going to college. I'm so happy I went to college. Between all that new age exploration and the fact that you work this deeply intuitive process that you yeah, I, I, I had said, I, I wrote Dirt making fun of the New Age movement and myself and my family and stuff. 
And then, uh, and I was in France saying that I'd left all that far behind. And it was a French journalist that pointed out that I was still writing according to a Buddhist method. That my writing was Buddhist, that I hadn't left at all. I was like, oh, you're right. Bummer. <laughs> Scratch everything I just said at like a hundred events. So, so, and I, I'm worried. It's so. It's okay. Like that. And the time. Maybe we should. Yeah, because I know. When you read the stuff from in the first hour, do you go, "Oh, that sentence is clunky," or do you just like literally never? I really never change it. I, I spent a couple months doing line edits, and out of a 60,000-word book, the most I'll cut is 1,000 words, which are mostly just grammatical morphemes, like the verb to be and, you know, too many withs and such. Um, Do you like your editor? Yeah, I have a new editor, and they did a beautiful job producing this book with color photos of the fish. Yeah, it was in my manuscript. I didn't know if they'd do it or not, but it was amazing they did it. And, uh, you know, it's four-color printing all throughout. So it's got blue on here. It's like really quality paper, nice boards and cover. I mean, I've never had a book that was actually a nice physical object. I mean, they, they did a beautiful job. And I love my editor. It's Grove Atlantic. Yeah. And it's Elizabeth Schmitz. She's the one who did uh, Cold Mountain, Charles Frazier. And, um, yeah, she's fantastic. So, and uh, she... She gets you? She and my agents made, I think, some small suggestions. I may have cut a few sentences or something. I, I can't remember now. I've written another book since, so I'm having trouble remembering. And I'm in editorial process for another book now, so I'm thinking of it. Um, but yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you again to, for having me. I really appreciate all the support. Thanks. Oh, let's give a big round of thanks. Thanks. And read. A girl's a half-formed thing. I think it's going to be great. Anyway, that's what I'm reading next. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.